It's good to be with you. Hope you're doing well this morning. I am so glad to be with you. I'm so honored that Anna asked me to come back again. Uh, I was here, if you can stretch your minds back, what feels like 10 years ago, but it was only two years ago, uh, 2020, I was here with you as your devotional speaker, and I was really grateful for that opportunity. And uh, here we are now, two years later. And I don't know about you, but it feels like 10 years later. Uh, But here we are, and we're entering into 2022, and I'm so happy to hear all of the awesome testimonies coming from Good News Club. Whenever Anna is around and we're doing, like, prayer meeting, I know she's just, like, busting at the seams to have some sort of testimony to share, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I know that there was quite a a difficult year, or it's been kind of a couple difficult years in the the interim, uh, but I'm grateful uh, for where we are, and hopefully you are as well. And I'm excited to share with you what I have to share this morning. It is, of course, on the Apostle Paul, and I've just been examining his life, and so I'm excited for uh, what I have to share this morning. Um, uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll kind of be hanging out there mostly, but we're going to be kind of overviewing a lot of the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, The Apostle Paul is such a fascinating figure when you examine the New Testament. He is, uh, of course, uh, responsible for the bulk of your New Testament, writing all sorts of letters. And, you know, who knows who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews? He's one of the ones that he's rumored to, but uh, he is definitely a very large figure. His character, his faith looms large over the New Testament. But I would have to imagine that the Apostle Paul's life did not turn out any way is like he expected it to. Uh, His trajectory for his life was way different than what actually occurred. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, you can kind of get a glimpse of that as he sort of relays some of his biography. Of course, if you examine the book of Acts, he gives his biography, his testimony, his uh, uh, sort of uh, awakening to faith several times. He gives it in Galatians too. But even here, he kind of gives it succinctly in all these little bullet points. He's talking about these evil workers in Philippians chapter 3, the early part, these evil workers who are boasting in their own abilities and the, and the fact that they're emphasizing this work of circumcision into the faith. And then he says in verse 4 uh, that I might also have confidence in the flesh. And he's sort of saying if anyone thinks that they have confidence in their flesh and what they can do in and of themselves, I have way more. And he says... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more because of this. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He's listing all these things. He's saying, I was the cream of the crop. I was that guy. I was a well-educated Pharisee, a Hebrew, a Roman citizen. I have everything going for me. It's interesting to me how he notes the word zeal there. He says, I was so zealous for my school of religion. I was so zealous for what I thought was God's will that I was making havoc of the church. It says that in Acts chapter chapter 8, that he was going about making havoc of the church of Christ. And yet... Little did he know that his trajectory, his plans, were completely going to be upended in just a few short years, perhaps. 
You know, you have that moment of him witnessing the uh, murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and into chapter 8. And then a couple of verses later, he's meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and I've always found it interesting. Uh, you can go there if you want. But uh, just uh, in Acts chapter 9, he's greeted by this resurrected Jesus in the flesh there on that road. And what does he have in his hands, so to speak, metaphorically? He has these commissions, this charge to go out and keep persecuting Christians in Damascus. His whole intent and purpose as he's on that road is to continue in this quote-unquote zealous trajectory of persecution. And yet he has his plans disrupted. His intentions, his uh, goals are completely turned upside down. And now this persecuting Paul is transformed into this preacher Paul who is now tenderly caring for the church he was just lightly persecuting. There's an interesting, uh, well, let me see if I can find it, because it just hit my head again. I think it's in Acts chapter 9. I think it's like in verse 20. Uh, yeah, so when he uh, has this moment of awakening, of course, and he's waiting for the Spirit, it says in verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Straightway, Paul is redeemed. He's preaching Christ. And then it says in verse 21, But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is, this, is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. <laughs> He's showing everyone that this Christ is real by the fact that this guy who was going to persecute them is now preaching to them, preaching Christ. And everyone who is in the church in this very early days, as it says, they're amazed, they're marveling, their eyes are wide with wonder at this guy who has been totally, completely transformed. And I would say, I think from this moment, this moment in Paul's life, throughout the rest of his life, he has sort of this this heartbeat, we could say, of gratitude and thanksgiving. You can kind of see it in Paul's writing. He's so, so, so thankful for what has occurred in his life. His plans, of course, have been totally upended, and yet he's so grateful for that. Grateful for the fact that God met him on that road and totally turned his life around. And I think it's because he knew that his calling and his very life was entirely one that was owed all to grace. And he constantly refers to that. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the fact that he considers himself the least of the apostles. You know, we, you know, centuries, uh, millennia later, would say he's the chief of the apostles because of all the great works that he did. And yet he, him and himself, considers himself the least of the apostles. And why does he say that? First Corinthians fifteen nine, he says, it's because of that horrible season of my life when I was persecuting the church. <laughs> he knows that this whole entire thing that he's been given, this idea of Paul the minister... It's something that he has no finger on. He had no sort of doing. He had no involvement in. It's something entirely owed to grace. Such is why I think he is so thankful, so grateful throughout his writing, throughout his life. 
And think about, too, I, I've thought about this recently with Paul, that this, this sort of, this, we could say, this notion of upset trajectories, this idea that his plans were completely upset, carries through mostly throughout his entire life, even after he's redeemed. If you go to Acts chapter 22, I'm, I'm not going to like read all these verses, but if you go to Acts chapter 22 and you kind of like trace Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which ends in chapter 28, it's so fascinating that Paul's life even then didn't really proceed how he might have expected it to. Again, here in Acts chapter 22, he's the foremost voice of the church. He's this guy who, since his redemption, has been preaching Jesus, preaching Christ. He's been going about making sure everyone knows that this guy, Jesus, is the whole reason why the church exists, why he is alive at all, and why they have any hope at all. He's giving all of this great and amazing doctrine and truth to all of these churches. And yet, from about this moment on through the rest of the book, he's seemingly hindered in that mission by counsel after counsel and trial after trial, all of this bureaucratic red tape that he has to kind of cut through. He's seemingly uh, made, seeing, seeing his, his mission, his zeal for the church kind of like uh, sort of confined. Actually, the last true few chapters of Acts, see Paul, he, he, he's brought before all kinds of governors and Roman magistrates as they're questioning him and they're, they're trying to figure out where this passion comes from, figure out what is all of this uproar about, about what he's preaching about. And we see him, if you just kind of trace him through these chapters, he's, he's threatened, he's, he's slandered, he's plotted against, he's conspired against, he's shipwrecked, and then he's imprisoned. If you read from 22 on, it would be sort of like the most discouraging missionary letter ever. (laughs) It's like this was Paul's missionary letter, and he's writing it to the churches, and they're like, here's what's been happening lately. You wouldn't be like, the gospel's going forth. It would be like, what is going on? Why, Why would God do something like this to Paul? This really magnificent speaker who has such a fervor and zeal for the gospel is seemingly put in chains and literally put in chains. Why would God do that? And yet, what do we find Paul doing? Notice, (laughs) so fascinating, the last two verses of the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. In chains again, he's waiting for further trial. You know, the book of Acts kind of ends on an ellipsis. We, we don't really know where the rest of the story goes with Paul. Of course, we know eventually that he's, uh, he's executed for uh, his preaching of Christ. But notice here, at, uh, at least according to history, but notice verse 30. It says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. <laughs> Even as he's had his ministerial trajectory, we could say, turned on its head, what do we find him doing? The same thing. (laughs) What he always does. He's preaching Jesus, turning folks to see the kingdom of Christ and its eminence and its power and its saving uh, ability and the the fact that this word of God is the only thing that matters. You, You find Paul doing exactly what he's always done from the very beginning, preaching Christ. And I find this to be so revealing of Paul's character. 
He, he was never one to let the, the might be's and the maybe's sort of fundamentally alter what he knew he was called to do. So often, uh, I would say just confessing myself, uh, I, I feel that. The, the future maybes and the possibilities and the what happens if, they so influence us and inform us, oftentimes, on what we're supposed to be doing in the here and now. Paul, I don't think, did. Or perhaps if he was anxious about the might be's and the maybes, he didn't really let it known. Or he just confessed it to Christ and he informed him and instilled him with just a tremendous faith. But we see this sort of, this notion of Paul's dedication and devotion to the gospel even earlier than that. Go with me to Acts chapter 20. Because I love this, this testimony is one of my favorites in all of the scriptures. But also, of course, in all of Paul's writings. Here he's been spending year after year with the church at Ephesus. And he's about to leave here. He's felt called to continue going on and, and leave this ministry. Not knowing what lies ahead of him. And he says that, verse 22, Acts twenty twenty two. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry with which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. If there's any sort of like, uh, testimony that is said of me, if there's any epitaph on my life, I wish it would be this. None of these things move me. The might-be's, the maybe's, knowing that what lies for him, uh, ahead of him at Jerusalem, likely means chains, likely means imprisonment, which likely will lead to execution. He's like, that doesn't matter to me. I am called of God to proclaim this truth. And he knows Perhaps something that lies ahead of him, but he's like, I'm unfazed by it. As long as there was breath in his lungs, he was going to be preaching that message. As long as he was alive, this message was going to be the first thing that came through his lips. And that doesn't, it's not just rhetoric that he's saying. It's not just this pithy sort of quotable thing that he's talking about. This is Paul's life. We've seen it several times already, but I take you now to Philippians 1, where I think we get the most, well, maybe in comparison to Acts chapter 20, it's the same. But I would say one of the more clear examples that this testimony is true. It's genuine for Paul. He's not just writing words. It's not rhetoric. It's real. Notice verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1 are some of, I think, the most impactful verses in the entire writing of Paul. Notice, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This here is, Again, a testimony similar. Notwithstanding what has occurred, my faith is sure, he says. He's not, notice, he's not belaboring on the fact that he's in chains, which he is at this time. 
He's not brooding over this idea that he's had this ministry that is so flourishing, that is so, uh, so expansive. He's not brooding and complaining over the fact that, God, why are you doing this? What are you doing confining your champion apostle? <laughs> Actually, he says, everything's happened according to the furtherance of the gospel. Not its hindrance, its furtherance. Not its stamping out, but its advancement, he says. And again, he's writing to this church, the church at Philippi. You can read about their starting in, I think it's Acts chapter 16. And he's writing to them, encouraging them. He's saying, hey, you might have heard something about what's happening to me. It's not what you, what, it's not what you hear. The rumors aren't true. The gospel doesn't stop on me. <laughs> what you've heard is actually not true because God is doing something way bigger than what it looks like on the surface. Contrary to what that church thought, Paul was undeterred in his resolve for Christ, and even that dungeon couldn't dampen his zeal. And instead, I think the lasting impression that he gives here is that he has deep abiding joy, even in that jail cell, because he knows that this gospel that he has been so unworthily made a part of has not in one degree been uh, hindered. It's not been stopped. It's not been uh, stopped by even the smallest thing. It's been furthered and progressed in advance, as he says. Again, I don't think that Paul's life went how he thought it would. (laughs) The trajectory was way different than I think, you know, you you, you talk to high schoolers. What's your five-year plan? What do you think your life is going to look like? Very rarely do those work out how they say that they want them to work out. Often the trajectory that we have for our lives is completely upset. And yet I think I would say in the very best way God does that. He disrupts our arrangements per se of how we would like our lives to go. I think in order for his purposes to come into full effect that we would see so greatly this idea, the fact that his purposes always prevail. And I think the faith that Paul demonstrates, this thankful, grateful faith is a faith that trusts God even when plans change. Paul saw his his current state differently. Chains couldn't keep the gospel down. Actually, he says this is an opportunity. I love this idea, verse 13, as he says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest, they're made known in all the palace and in all other places. Everyone knows. Everyone who came by Paul's jail cell knew why he was there. Roman guards, Roman centurions who walked by, they knew why this guy was there because of Christ. (laughs) He was just preaching to everyone who breathed. (laughs) I imagine Paul just preaching to everything that was around him. (laughs) He's making sure everyone knew that, hey, it's not about me and it's not about my predicament. It's about this Christ that I have been given this occasion to witness to him. These events, I would say, are only explainable as you realize Paul's sort of trust in the sovereignty of God, even over this moment. Again, he's in a place where he would not have chosen. (laughs) He would not have wanted to be there, and yet here he is. He finds himself 
in a jail cell in chains. And yet he understands that even here, this is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. An opportunity for faith to be demonstrated in such an uncanny way that those who see it can only be left saying, that must be God. And here he's demonstrating that in a very real way. And I wonder, (laughs) I've asked myself after reading this passage, would I have a similar response to Paul? If I have seen, as Paul has seen even before this moment, the flourishing of the gospel, the growth of the church, people healed, people saved, people changed, people baptized, people having their lives turn around, churches planted here, there, and yon. And yet God chooses to say, I'm going to put you in jail for a while. (laughs) How would we handle those sort it's one thing to have Paul's trajectory of persecution change we can see that and be like look at how God is working but what about the trajectory that's good (laughs) Paul's trajectory is well-meaning his plans are good intentioned he's furthering the church of Christ and yet God seems to hamper it you can understand why churches would be curious about this apostle you know he tries to defend himself in second Corinthians because the Corinthians were calling him out because they hadn't vi- he hasn't visited them in a while. <laughs> he's like, why do I have to prove myself to you? It's Christ. And here he's trying to encourage the Philippians for somewhat of the same. You might have heard something different. Don't believe the rumors. God's gospel is just as true with Paul in a jail cell and Paul out of it. I don't, though, think we have to imagine too hard about what would happen if our plans were changed. <laughs> Again, just look back the last two years. Our good intentions were completely sort of let to rot, so to speak. As one person said one thing and another government official said another thing. And we were told uh, so many times different stories and we had so many different things come about where, yes, our good plans were altered. We weren't under arrest, but we did have this experience of our plans, if you'll permit me to say this, being locked down. I wonder how we manifested faith throughout those years. I would say I didn't manifest it very well. I I, I think those sorts of moments... Like we've been through as a country uh, and us as a state and us as a region in central Pennsylvania. We've been through the last two years like everyone else has. And it's sort of been, I would say, it's been revealing to see what our faith really stands on. Could we give thanks for what seems like an obstacle? But maybe it was really an opportunity all along. An opportunity for us to demonstrate a faith that is uncanny and unexplainable other than the fact that it's God working. I don't think anyone in their right mind would call what we've been through a good opportunity. And yet Paul says that. (laughs) These things have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And again, this isn't just Paul. I can take you to scripture after scripture of the same thing. I immediately think of Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says at the end of his life, you thought thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. (laughs) 
Trajectory changed. Life still something that God was doing. There was something God was working on even when Joseph's trajectory was completely upended. One of my favorites though. I'll take you there. It's 1 Kings chapter 12. Maybe you're thinking, what? (laughs) Yeah, 1 Kings 12. (laughs) I've been preaching through Kings at my church. We're taking a slight break over the last couple of weeks, and I'm excited to get back into it. But I keep coming back to this chapter. To me, it's one of the most amazing chapters in this whole chronicle of this history of the people of Israel. If you know, just a very quick sort of background, because I don't want to take up all of your time. In chapter 12, what you have going on, Solomon is dead. And you have basically everyone jockeying for his throne. His heir apparent is not a very good leader, Rehoboam. And yet what happens, this other guy, Jeroboam, comes back and he sort of leads this coup onto the throne of Israel. And then what happens is you have the kingdom divided. What was once God's chosen nation is now two feuding tribal nations. (laughs) Things don't look promising for God's people. The people of Israel who were brought through so much. They had had such tremendous examples of God's faithfulness for centuries. And yet here they are, the quote-unquote people of promise. Their nation is divided. Their government is in shambles. There's no king to rally behind. Everything seems crumbling. Rehoboam, he sees this opportunity. He sees this coup happen, and he's like, okay, let's muster up some strength, and we're going to go take back what's ours. We're going to lead a mighty counterattack and get what is ours, what is rightfully ours. And every, he's wanting to fight to bring everyone again under the banner of Judah. And when they're planning this, this guy comes in. His name is Micaiah. He's a prophet. He's only mentioned very sparingly in the Kings, in the books of Kings. And yet he says one of the most amazing lines, I think, in the whole Bible. Look at verse 24. He's talking to these these guys in the house of Judah and the house of Benjamin. They're raring to go, to go back into battle. Look at verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, Micaiah is speaking, giving this word, this prophecy. Ye shall not go up. Nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house. Lay down your swords. Go back to your homes. You're not going to fight. You're not going to keep this bloodshed going. Notice, for this thing is from me. They hearkened, therefore, to the word of the Lord and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. This thing is from Yahweh. A word that, to me, it strikes me to my core. How could this be from God? This is not according to plan. This is not the right trajectory. We're the people of promise. We're the people who are supposed to bless the nations. People are supposed to look at us as the prosperous people of God. And yet here we are disrupted, divided, feuding, fighting, broken, in shambles. And a prophet says, this thing is from me. What it seems like is not always what it is. 
There's a work of God that we cannot always perceive. And yet we have the faith to say, as Micah, Micaiah here proclaims, the God's work is always proving true and victorious. Even when we can't see it. For Paul, this was true. He says, everything has fallen out rather into the furthers of the gospel. Joseph says the same thing. God's was doing a work that I didn't even notice in the moment. But now looking back, I can see it. And Micaiah says, hey guys, guess what? There is something going on that we don't see, but we have to trust in Yahweh's purposes. (laughs) He was given this incredible moment of cognition to say, this thing is from Yahweh. Perhaps the last year has, year plus has felt a lot like this unknown chaotic shambles of a mess. But what if something deeper was going on the whole time? What if something more true was going on? What if something that God only could bring about was happening the entire time? We're not always privy to the purposes that God intends to have happen in our lives, but we can rest assured that his purposes always prevail. They are always true. And even when it appears contradictory, it can look like in Paul's case, everything is lost, the gospel is confined, and he says, actually, it's advancing. Or it can look like Joseph. My life is in the tubes and he's bringing his family to deliverance actually. (laughs) When it appears lost, there's actually a work of salvation happening. Defeat actually looks like victory. What's the key image of that? (laughs) Just look at the cross. What looked like defeat was actually victory in disguise. (laughs) Everyone saw this Jesus hanging on the cross. Even his own disciples were like, what are we going to do now? Remember Jesus comes to the the disciples on the road to Emmaus? We thought it was him. We thought it was that guy that was going to lead us into the kingdom. And then what does it say? Jesus leads them through the scriptures. and shows them how everything points to himself. What looked like defeat was just a veiled victory. What looked like death was really just resurrection. I would say this is how God always works. He works through seeming contradictions. So the last year plus might look like very much an obstacle for the church. For clubs such as this, for groups of faith that meet and want to speak into people's lives the truth of the gospel. And I would say that by the same token that there's always a work of God going on. What matters for you and I is not the might be's and the maybe's and the what happens if. It's the faithfulness right here in the moment. Having the faith to say, like Micaiah, this thing is from God. It's not up to us to change it or to try and and push back against it. It's the faith to say, this thing is from God. What's required of me? Faithfulness in the here and now. Faithfulness knowing that these plans and purposes of God that we don't always see, we don't always see the fruition of, they're always happening and prevailing. 
And that brings us able to say, along with Paul, I'll just read this verse in closing. It's amazing that he can say this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, his testimony is, what then, notwithstanding, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein I do rejoice, and yea, will rejoice. That was his testimony. Christ is proclaimed always as the king over all these times and changing of the seasons. And the fact is, he can say, all of this is happening under the furtherance of the gospel. That's my, my charge to myself. <laughs> My charge to you and to everyone is the same. Have the faith to see and to say that this thing is from God. Because he's always working and he's always moving. Let's pray.